Right? You see national figures, you see global figures, you're like, oh God, right? And they're amazing. But the reality is a lot of spaces are occupied by generational wealth. And being in those spaces, I met so many people with a good heart and so many people that didn't really, that were just born into change making, right? And that taught me not to hate those people, but to understand the systems before us, right? And to understand it systemically, it's systemic and intentional for you to feel like, oh, we'd never be able to. And it's like, we're just one of the many people. And of course you can, right? Like we are enough to be part of the change makers, leading at a global, national and local level. Welcome back to the Well Now What podcast. I'm your host, Savannah. Today I'm joined by Miss Sarah Mora. Sarah is remarkable. She's accomplished so much at 24 years old and she's so honest and authentic and very vulnerable, which I really appreciate that about her. I very much enjoyed this conversation. We talk about what it means to be undocumented to her and why she decided to talk about it publicly, how DACA has helped her serve herself as well as her siblings. We talk about imposter syndrome and how she still suffers from that and doubting yourself, as well as North American culture of the hustle and the bustle compared to maybe European culture. We also talk about societal expectations and pressures of having an education outside of high school to get a good career. Um, and then of course we talk about her activism work and how social media has played a big part in that. So I hope you enjoy this episode. This was so great, I learned a lot. Let's get into it. I'm here with the inspiring Miss Sarah Mora. Sarah is 24 years old and has been an immigrant rights activist since her early teens growing up in New Jersey. In 2014, her work supporting the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Policy, DACA, led her to interview the president of her home country from Costa Rica. It was then that Sarah divulged her status as undocumented in a mission that caused her to go viral. Revealing her status was uncommon at the time, and she quickly began to receive responses from her peers. Many were extremely appreciative of her honesty and ability to open up about this important conversation of immigrant status and rights. The surge of support prompted Sarah to start Population Mike, an organization centered around providing communities with the tools necessary to tell their stories and be heard by lawmakers. Since then, Sarah has used her platform to push for immigration reform and support others who were undocumented in any way possible. Sarah's also been featured in Oprah's Eight Young Visionaries Shaping the World, as well as Seventeen's Magazine 2020 Voices of the Year. First of all, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. We're the same age, but I feel as though you've lived so many different lifetimes. So I'm just really excited to learn from you. That's so sweet. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy conversations um, as part of my work almost more than anything else, because I think when we have live conversations, when we have conversations where we're breaking down our experiences, people really get to see that we're human and mm -hmm. that uh, despite differences, we all are literally just trying to figure out things day to day. So thank you for having me. And I'm excited to, you know, be with you. Exactly. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I want to get straight into it. So what does it mean to be undocumented? And why did you decide to speak about it publicly? What being undocumented means to me yes. Yes. is that uh, there are times where I feel like I have to have everything figured out because... 
I love my family and I love my community. Um, to me, my community is the immigrant working class of the United States and of the world because migration is a global crisis, not a U.S. crisis. So to be undocumented is not only that, but also um, to be human because a legal status does not define our identities. It simply defi defines what the government up front feels we are worthy of. Um, and being undocumented becomes cynical in so many ways where we have to fit into identities and profiles that are robotic. Uh, you know, beginning with the fact that uh, undocumented people and immigrants are criminalized. Um, and even if there were to be some crimes, right, I think it's pretty radical how the government defines populations of undocumented people. It has to be people um, that really are just not humans, but we are humans. So to be undocumented is to be human, to be constantly evolving, but to literally have a target on your back. Right. And that's not to include um, migrants at uh, their limiting identities to the government, which is like the the uh, statistic that black migrants are disproportionately targeted by ICE. Not only do does the color of their skin impact the way that um, the government treats the population, but also legal status. And that's not something I can directly speak on. But I do want to mention that because it's so complex and then your second question was you mind repeating it one more time yes why do you decide to speak about it publicly and I'm wondering were you terrified or scared yeah I decided to speak out about being undocumented um in 2014 when I got out of high school and I spoke about it because I was given the opportunity to interview the president of Costa Rica at the time which is the country that I was born in And I knew that speaking out would be a way to begin to be one of the many voices at a state level that was personalizing the issue, right? When we speak on policy, we think of the government and we get overwhelmed, at least I did, when thinking, well, I don't even know how that works, right? Your common person that's in working class and maybe didn't get to finish their education might feel so much more disconnected to politics than middle-class and wealthy America. And I think when I spoke out, I knew that I deserve to speak out and that my family did. And that if you exist in society, you should speak out. And then in 2017, when I spoke out again, Trump had rescinded DACA. And there was such a big wave of movement that's existed in California for decades on migrant rights, workers' rights, farmers' rights. And being 17, 15 on Instagram, seeing that and seeing people that were 24 at the time, um, like Justino Mora and so many different um, young people that are now well in their 30s, I realized we didn't have that in the East Coast. Like being in Jersey, you didn't talk about that. There were other issues that were super concerning. And like I grew up in a low-income city. So there were other issues, but migration and immigration status, you simply didn't divulge your status. That just wasn't a common thing. And movement existed, but it was very much led and still very difficultly led by org faces rather than like the way that California presents it, which is very personalized. So I felt like when I spoke out, I wasn't really even aware of the immense um, danger I was placing mm -hmm. myself in, people in, 
um, you know, and my family, but I did know that I would make it personal, right? That I would only talk about me, that I would stress that I wasn't a speaker for all undocumented people, which happens so much in media. And I knew that for better or worse, it would just be me using my personal story to say, this is happening 24 seven to our community. And I'm not the first one to talk about it. Um, so it was scary, but I think it was also where I found my purpose, which is storytelling, because I think when you know your identity and your story, which sounds so complicated, you realize that people can't tell you who you are if you know who you are. And I, and I think I began to truly find myself at 17, 18 in such an early age, because I realized oh, I'm not undocumented. Like mm-hmm. what the heck, you know what I mean? I would say undocumented and unafraid, but I'm like, I'm this and I'm that and I'm so many yes. other things. I'm a leader. I'm, I work with youth. I just graduated high school. I'm in, I'm so many other things besides my legal status. Nobody is illegal. That was my thought process when I spoke out and it still is. And it sure as hell, it was a scary thing to do now that I think back to it. But I think in the anger of the moment and in the sadness of the moment, the heaviness of the realization of the systems that exist before us that does something to you. And I think that's exactly why I did it. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's, that's so courageous. And even for you to realize that 17, 18, I know when I was at that age, you know, I I had no idea who I was, but for you to realize that you're, you're not just, Sarah isn't just undocumented. That's not who you are. That's, that's beautiful and courageous. Um, And as I said, I'm from Canada and I don't, I'm pretty sure we don't have a program like DACA. So for people that don't know, do you mind explaining how DACA helped you and your siblings? Absolutely. So in 2012, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which is commonly known as DACA or Dreamers status, right, which many people coined around that time. um, It was a temporary protection status and is a temporary protection status that was put in place by the Obama administration and under it 800,000 undocumented essentially young people fit under the status and it allows for you to have a driver's license, a work authorization and a social security by which you can exist in common day to days. You can drive yourself to work. You have a social security to file taxes. You do not receive health care. You initially were not uh, uh, able to apply for financial aid. There's about 10 plus states that have the that have passed, you know, uh, reform that now allows for people that are DACA recipients, also TPS, which is temporary protected status, to apply for help in college. You cannot leave the country unless under advanced parole, which recently was brought back up. Um, you have to go through lawyers for it. Yeah, over and all, it's, I mean, it's a temporary status. You have to renew it every two years. And yeah, it definitely gives a grain of sand of hope to houses like mine, where my, you know, my parents are not covered by DACA. And so what we do is the hope that keeps them going, right? Aside from working their jobs, essentially DACA gives so many homes like mine that chance to keep feeling like there's there's motivation and a reason to keep going in a country that is very much exhausting the working class, especially the undocumented people. Yes. And I'm, I'm wondering, did you attend college or, and what, if you did, what did you study? And um, yeah. And how important is education to you, I guess, in your journey? Yeah. So initially I was going to study to be a psychologist and after getting involved in organizing and stuff um, in high school and after I decided to go into diplomacy. So at community college, which is where I started, I 
began to just make sure my associate's degree was specific to diplomacy. And I had such a common, but uh, an experience I haven't talked about too much, but such a common experience to so many people that are affected by legal status, where the college that I applied to super mega marketed that they were dreamer friendly Mm -hmm. and when switching to the college they weren't dreamer friendly right and like it was just marketing and so it was a really scary experience where I ended up deciding that I that's also when Trump percent DACA literally the fall where Trump percent DACA that happened when I went community to four-year and I was just like you know what like I found my purpose I'm going to go back to school eventually but why would I force getting myself into an institution that's begging me I mean I'm sorry that's forcing me to beg to prove why I'm worthy of being in there when I know what I'm capable mm-hmm. of not be not out of pride but rather out of true um pain right that we have to already prove ourselves so much to institutions to be worthy of jobs but also like I have DACA right it's not a secret right and so I decided to stop college in 2017 and go full-time into digital strategy and at the intersection of human rights and immigrant rights um and I do believe that an education is important I just don't think the way we are taught about education is healthy That's exactly the word I want to use for it because Mm -hmm. we're taught that we need the validation of the highest institution in the world to tell us that we are educated. And I do believe we exist in a society that's capitalism based. So we're going to have to have degrees. And I mean, if you want a degree, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I want a degree, right? But I do think I've been able to find in this journey, my disassociation from the value and the validity that comes with with institutions. I no longer feel what 17-year-old Sarah felt. I no longer feel what 20-year-old Sarah felt. Not even two years ago, not even one year ago. Now I feel more aware and more powerful, not because of anything else, but identity. Again, my story where I realize when I go back to college, that is a tool, not it using me, right? Like I don't need my bachelor's for a space to know I'm worthy. I'm worthy before my bachelor's. I'm worthy before my high school certificate because education is un, is just not the way they teach us. You can read a book and be educated. You can be a person who is studious, name that word. You can be a person who just informs themselves and be a whole lot more educated than people with Ivy League degrees. And that's no shade. That's literally no shade. If people know me a person, they know it's no shade. It's just more, we are literally trained when we were kids. Yeah, like even, I guess now we're living in a time that people are making careers out of themselves on social media. Like you've built such a big platform and I hate to use this term because I know it's there's like negative connotation with the term influencer, but you're like a person of of influence now. So I'm, yeah, I'm wondering how you shifted right now. I think you said you're a digital strategist. So what do you do now to your day-to-day with social media and activism online? After... Trump percent of DACA. And I made the very intense and sad decision that even aspiring to college at the moment didn't make sense. Um, I began organizing with a state organization, went through a lot of really messed up things that just so timely prepared me for my next role. And in, at that job, I was a digital strategist. There was just no, no official role for it. 
But there was, because I was the digital strategist who ran the digital strategy of the organization. Mm -hmm. And so after that, um, I ran for president of Women's March Youth National Program. And that was the first time they'd elected presidents um, there's, there were always chairs, which you might know, like Linda Sarsour and all of the heads of the Women's March. So I ran for president, absolutely crushed that I had just had the worst experience at my first job in human rights. Mm-hmm. And I got elected, which was insane. I obviously like, am, I don't, I don't want to say obviously, but I'm very much a stereotypical imposter syndrome queen and like <laughs> always like doubting everything I do, like, yes. Who am I, right? Like, who the hell, 24-7. And so in that, at that point, even more, because my role wasn't even official, right? So I'm like, oh my God, I've never even been like a full world. And getting elected just like reaffirmed that you don't institutes to approve of you. And I got elected and I was co-president with my um, now good friend, Samantha Cotter. And there were 300 plus chapters. We were working directly with youth on youth voter turnout. We were part of the largest youth voter turnout in the history of America. Um, And part of building education workshops, um, I advised on digital strategy, being part of trainings, um, just overall overseeing the different actions that people were taking at a state level all across the country, youth in high school. And that experience was transformational because again, I, I always think about the organizers that existed before and a lot of them didn't have college degrees. A lot of organizers across the world that I admire are not big, don't have big platforms and are changing their country, right? And they're not doing it verified or, or confirmed by anyone just by themselves because that's just what you do when you're a change maker, right? You don't ask, you just do. And that experience with like uh, with Women's March Youth really helped build me um, because I always wondered, right? You see national figures, you see global figures, you're like, oh my God, right? And they're amazing. But the reality is a lot of spaces are occupied by generational wealth. And being in those spaces, I met so many people with a good heart and so many people that didn't really, that were just born into change making, right? And that taught me not to hate those people, but to understand the systems before us, right? And to understand it systemically, it's systemic and intentional for you to feel like, oh, we'd never be able to. And it's like, we're just one of the many people. And of course you can, right? Like we are enough to be part of the change makers, leading at a global, national and local level. And also that local is so much more important because without local, what is global and national? You know, and that again, that experience was transformational because it, it gave me perspective about what role I want to play. And I'm I'm fully wrapped and in love with the power of storytelling at movement level and social justice and human rights. Because when we think of stories, uh, a lot of times we see ads right of, of social causes. And I think when people own their stories, we can reclaim marketing and human rights. And that's where I'm trying, where I'm, what I'm building with population, Mike, where if local organizations had access to marketing, they'd be able to tell their own stories and not speak in third person, right? Where people are like talking about somebody else's story, but rather the person themselves is able to own their their storyteller rights, which there's actually a bill on that by the University of Pennsylvania. Um, after Women's March Youth, which was literally October, 2019, I was at the border 
from like halfway through my presidency. And I spent it just volunteering as a storyteller at the border and found out so much about how the border is spoken for, right? And how they don't have access to marketing. And now I'm working directly with them to customize the tools they have to virtually create an ecosystem to fundraise alone and to not require massive media to go and amplify them, but rather they have a built-in system that reproduces online. And that's what Population Mike, that's the goal of it, right? To create fundraising where we hand out scholarships to storytellers and journalists that exist at the border and trans-border communities, which aren't even known. So I worked on that for a year. I came home and then boom, the pandemic. Yes. And that, this uh, pandemic year, I fundraised $30,000 for um, undocumented communities. My mind was blown because I was so out of it. And that still happened. And that's when I officially launched Population Mike because it it had existed since 2014, but always, again, imposter syndrome. No, it isn't. <laughs> do you still feel that now? Like, do you still doubt yourself still? Or Because I've seen you speak, like you bring this wave of just confidence and maybe it's just internally where you're just so nervous and you're dying, but like, do you still doubt yourself? My sister is <laughs> ask my sister. Do I doubt myself? That's why existing in the world that I do is so crazy. Mm-hmm. Cause people are like, Oh my God, I love your confidence. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like I think I live for the quote. That's like, bake it till you make it. Because yes. I think a lot of times you do have to step into rooms, terrified and speak. Mm-hmm. And I, and I was just going to put a, a, like a little breakdown about that today because social media moves fast and it's getting more exhausting. So it gets hard to balance being real with people and also continuing with the message you represent. I represent yes. a message to me, even though I'd like to be human. I'm like, well, if I'm too human with y'all, y'all going to want me to entertain y'all on how human I am. And I have something to tell y'all, which is mm-hmm. is a global crisis. And this is what you could do about it. Right. I just wanted to pop in and say thank you so much for listening so far. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on any of the listening platforms that you listen to. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people to find it, as well as follow me on Instagram at wellnowwhatpodcast. So look back to the interview. But I absolutely, every single day of my life, struggle with that. Like every single day of my life, this is going to sound crazy, but I said this year I would be more vulnerable. Like... Because it's draining to be vulnerable, right? Not even just because it's embarrassing or something. Every single day of my life, my to-do list, somebody would look at it and be like, girl, you are actually like insane. And every single day of my life, at the end of the day, I'm like, I didn't do, like, I don't know if I could curse. Yes, of course. Yes. Yeah. I didn't do shit. Mm-hmm. And what the fuck? And who am I? And how am I going to get to anything I want? And oh my God, that was bad. Like, I am literally my worst critic. And I do think, like, I'm not the only one. So many people who do so much that I've met that I admire are so mean to themselves. That's why last year was transformational to me because it was such a hard year. I worried that my parents would lose their job. I worried about everything, everyone. But I also realized, wow, right? Like life's, life stopped in, to so many degrees and it made me realize how much, speaking for the US, life is robotic here. And production is the primary means by which you find your happiness. And that is never ending because production mm-hmm. is never ending. So therefore your happiness is tied to your amount of productivity. And since it's never ending, where's your happiness? And I think at 24, I sit on like an 80 year old's body because I'm like, boom, like there's no way you can come out of that wisdom. Like 
I'm looking at everything I created and I, I'm disassociated. Like, I don't feel like that's me. Like you're talking to me and you're like, Oh, I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> know who you're talking about. Like, I'm just yes. a simple girl. I'm lazy. You know what I mean? Like I literally yeah. everything, but what I've created. And it just shows me that to exist as a person with very big goals or larger than expectation or whatever is to constantly have to apply self-care and not the cute bathtub one. I'm talking about crying and like yes. therapy, which is so much of a big topic, but I'll stop right there. No, yeah, it's 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 interesting you bring that up because I think the North American mindset, like Canada too, if you're not productive or like you're defined by the work that you do. Um, and it's interesting because I was talking to some friends because I lived in Stockholm um, in Sweden um, mm-hmm. on exchange for like half a year and just the mindset there, like people, it's just not the same thing. They didn't identify like productivity and like work as who they are. Like they were so much more, they're like a good friend, a good sister. And like, that was the values are placed more on that. Absolutely. And even just like the, the way of living, like in Sweden, there's a, and culturally a thing called fika, which means like in the middle of the day, you stop, you have like a pastry and a coffee and you stop everything that you're doing. So all the classes that I was in, even if it was like a 45 minute class, there was a fika time. You had to stop what you were doing and to just, you know, sit down, sit down and just enjoy America it. Could never, the U.S. could never. No, no, which is, yeah, which is crazy. So I know well, you're always on social media. As you said, you have this message to bring. Do you ever just get completely drained of it? Even though there's great things with social media, you can spread your message faster. But like, what do you do when you have those days where you're like, I can't anymore? I think more than ever now, I'm like, when I get drained, I just want to go on, like, make a video. Like, this is going to sound like random. <laughs> I just want to grab my phone and be like, guys, like, I just want to, like, say so much and rant and rant and rant. And I've done mm-hmm. it. And sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm exhausted because then now there's questions coming in and comments and people want to have a conversation. And to other people, they're like, wow, you're so lucky. Let's get real. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, no human is equipped to communicate in the way that social media has capacitated us to. Yes. Right? So like, it might sound so amazing, but let's get real, right? If you're really that person behind the screen, that's a lot of human interaction. And to extents that we're not just saying one day, we're talking about every day. If you keep it, you know, if you keep it, if you have that no boundary thing where you're like, just so, you know, yes. and what's crazy is there were times in the last two years where I didn't, there was no content agenda. Like now it's sort of coming together, right? But truly, since my platform is this, it's, it's been hard in social justice to have a content agenda for me because everything, I've always wanted to be authentic. Like, I'm like, yes. I don't want to have an agenda. Like, I just want it to be in the moment, important. I want people to understand and feel infected by my passion for human rights because it doesn't stem from passion, it stems from experience. And then in the process, I'm like, everything is subjective. It's going to keep changing. So even when I have an agenda now... I'm more loose about it because in the past two years, I've had moments where I'll share. I'll, like there was a time where I posted a video crying from the hospital. Mm-hmm. My mom learned the healthcare system like the back of her hand because she has heart problems. She got four open heart surgeries. We have no health insurance. Like I'm talking about, I haven't gone to the doctors in like a minute. And like, I never talk about that. Cause what the heck? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not just going to grab my phone and be like, I don't have health here. Like, and it might sound like people would be like, yeah, people would appreciate it. That's exhausting. Like I actually don't have health care. It's not a product. It's not a brand. Right. Yes. And so that day though, I just cried and I was hysterically crying. And I, I have a lot of 
friends everywhere. So I have friends that work for the New Jersey government. And I was just going off on the governor. And I was like, you know what? Like, not just today, but every single day, if you do not speak English in a hospital, you run the risk of malpractice. And let's be honest, malpractice is a fancy way of saying that my family and my community's family and your family watching this has more ability to die at the hands of the people who are supposed to take care of them because there's no fucking translators. Because interpreters are too fucking difficult to put in the hospitals of the United States of America and in the fucking world. I'm sure that's that's an issue in other places. And I was crying because it wasn't a fucking plan. It was my mother about to walk into an appointment and I couldn't walk in with her where she's only speaking Spanish and the doctor's speaking English. The point is, as random as this came up right now is how random was me posting. People were talking about it for days in my DMs. And I'm like, do you think... I really want to sit here and talk about this shit with y'all for hella days when I'm still thinking about my mom. The answer is no. But then I almost did something. I was going to start a coalition across the country with people going into med- into medicine and, and build uh, and push for interpreters at a state level across the country. I'm still thinking about it. That's something super possible if we lobby for it. But again, these very real issues become my day-to-day content that's exhausting. Like everybody has their own way of presenting their content. But for me, again, I always wanted it to be my life, not me speaking for the millions of immigrants, not me. No, me, my family, my experience. If you present me an issue, I'll advocate, like I'll push it forward. But what I do when I'm done is I just don't go on. That's what I've been doing. I just don't go on. I can't. Mm -hmm. I won't. Right. Or I'll like, I'll post what I'm doing, like like uh, I'll post a recipe I'm cooking. Mm-hmm. We're like tonight I'm having a girls' night, obviously like quarantined, and I'll post what I'm doing for that girls' night. You know what I mean? Like yes. I'll try to add that content no matter what's going on because now it's radical to post a freaking like that. You're not tripping out if if everything is is um. It's really intense. But again, stress on the, I just don't go on because it's insane how many hours I personally have spent in the past three years. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's incredible. Like I can't imagine you, you have all this passion and you want this change to happen. Um, I assume there's times, yeah, you you might feel hopeless or there's like so many things that you want to do. You want to change, but you can't, it can't all happen right away. Um, did you learn that with time that, you know, I think for me, like when I was younger, if I want to change, I was kind of impatient. And I'm like, I want it to happen right now. But obviously in the US, you know, there's, or even, sorry, Canada to North America, um, things take time. How do you now learn how to be, I don't know, patient? I think this is going to sound a little immature, but I know that when I explain mm-hmm. it, it's going to, people are going to see what I mean. I don't have patience. So, so <laughs> I'm explaining all this like, oh yeah, I log off, but I'm the same Sarah. Like the second mm-hmm. something happens, I have a reaction and, yes. and, I feel like to so many people in this space, it might seem like it's a flaw. Like you really have to master the wisdom of the longevity of the fight. But I think in so many ways, being passionate and urged about human rights is so intentional, as crazy as it sounds, because I now have the ability to understand my freaking brain and my body are exhausted. But when I'm on, you know what I mean? The intensity of what I come and present is serious because I don't think my passion and my urgency was ever tied to my age. It was tied to my ability to understand how possible changes in systems and how, how 
contagious it is to bring uh, to anybody, whether that's a group or one person, your passion, right? And your ability to see the systems as changeable, where there's so many humans right now that are exhausted and are just like, fuck this shit. Like, this cannot be changed. When you step into a room, you say, fuck that. We're going to change this shit. People are like, holy fuck. Who are you? Right? And they're like, I'm the same as you. I just know we we have to change that. That's yes. infectious. And I think I do not have patience, but I do have the awareness that the fight is not going to end tomorrow. So for me, it's more about the realization that I have to take care of my health and that health is also a revolutionary act. That realization has changed my life in the past six months because I now value sleep. I now value joy in ways that I haven't before. I now value my ability to feel. Whereas before I'm like, I don't feel shit. I don't give a fuck. Now I'm like, oh, I feel everything, baby. I need to cry. Give me a second. Leave me alone. I'll be right back. <laughs> right? <laughs> or I'll be like, oh, I'm tired. I just sleep. Like, just yeah. like a rock. Ask my family. They're like, girl, when you sleep, you're gone. Because now I realize, holy shit, like, this is a big fight, which is why we need big rests. And we need big joy. And we also need big big peace, right? And those things don't come by not having boundaries and fighting 24-7. But at the same time, I would be a liar to say I have that patience because when I get back into the room of work and when I get back into the spaces where I'm doing that thing, I'm like, we need this tomorrow. We need this tonight. We don't have, we don't count with that much time. (laughs) And I think it would serve the world a lot if more humans felt okay in their skin to come in with that urgency and not feel like they're too much because to me too much is loss of hope not too much hope never Mm -hmm. I think too much is loss of hope because to be alive is to have the ability to change the world so yeah Mm -hmm. it's even though the, the concept seems really basic to like you need to rest you need time to recharge but like in our society, as we talked about North American culture, it's the hustle, it's the bustle. You got to keep going. So for you to actually like to realize that you need that time to rest and being like a, in the public eye, um, you must face, you know, you know, a lot of, a lot of backlash or you must face hate and stuff too. So for you to realize that you need that time to recharge in yourself to the next day, do it all over again, um, is really, really admirable. So, um, because I think a lot of times when people see big platforms, you assume class status. Like yes. I live, my mom cleans houses. My dad's a mechanic. My sister's working and she's in college. Like my brothers just graduated high school. Like I'm not. And even then it doesn't mean I, I can't speak for anyone. I'm just speaking for my story. This platform that I have is new. And even if it were 10 years old, if I'm part of the working class still, the point is we don't know people's stories online. And so for me, there was a point where when I started to get the platform, I'm like, oh my God, now I have this. Now I cannot rest. Like I must mm-hmm. not grieve anything but action for others. And then I was like, who is saying that to me? And it's a collective message that is being thrown in our faces online. And I realized, well, I can do some badass shit, but I'm not doing shit right now. I'm splattering all over the place. And it might be inspiring to folks to see me being broken into little pieces, but it sure as hell wasn't inspiring to me. And that took a lot of uh, alone moments where I realized nobody was directly telling me that. It was just me being online and having a platform and being an activist and being a storyteller and being in certain spaces that made me feel like I had to be on 24-7 and having a hard time finding mentors. I think so many people talk about, oh, I love mentors. We stand, all this stuff. Girl, bye. 
Okay. It's still been hard for me to find mentors because mentors only come around when things look successful for me. That's always been the story of my life. And so that affects the way you have your habits, because unless you come from money and even then it's subjective, you, you tie your value to your success and to what you can do. And so when these mentors only approach you when you're successful, you're like, well, I must work 24 seven for approval, right? To make sure I'm doing this right, especially if I'm out of school, right? Because I need that institutional okay. validation. So I think now I can safely say out loud, I'm not going to say it on social media though, because I'm going to be like, oh, the guru of health. But I can safely say out loud, I don't feel bad for sleeping. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. Whoa, yes. I'm losing it up. <laughs> Sometimes I do. I feel way less bad than Sarah has ever felt in her life about sleeping than I do now. I'm now like, okay, it's eight and I want to be in bed. That's okay. Yeah. I need to get to bed. All right, y'all. People well, need to hear more of this though, because yeah. it's human function to take the rest to pause, you know? So thank you for saying that. I know it sounds so basic. I shouldn't feel bad for resting, for sleeping. But we need to hear it more. Follow the nap ministry. Ooh. <laughs> At first when I was following you, I was like, ooh, what are they talking about? I'm not about to be a bum, right? Because literally your mind is wired to produce. But the more I, I listen to it, I'm like, it's it's revolutionary what they're talking about. Because they're not, you have to work. If you're working class, you have to work. Nobody's like, nobody's going to stop you from work. You have to work. But it's just when you do get that second to nap, who the hell wants to nap? When you're used to process your trauma and your life by working mm-hmm. But a five-minute nap is revolutionary because if you're able to do that in the middle of a massively loud, you know, voice telling you, like, work, work, work. Like, who's our boss, bro? We're all collectively running in one direction. Yeah. Turn back a little bit. Very true. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the articles you've been featured in campaigns. Um, So Oprah featured you in the Eight Young Visionaries. That's incredible that is amazing i know you're i can't believe you like you're probably your imposter syndrome is probably just feeding you when you, you saw that thank you thank yes. you <laughs> gonna say. so you just said it for me yeah yes. like, and then 17 magazine too and then you've worked with levi's and old navy so do you mind just talking about your experience with those companies and then as well as kind of being featured in those magazines that's crazy it's insane how much something like that makes you feel so many feelings because again as we go back to institutional validation we shouldn't we should we should celebrate ourselves i've seen so many cute memes about that that are so not cute and actually just hella powerful mm-hmm. we shouldn't have to wait for an institution to celebrate us but man let me tell you about how much that institution celebrating me made me feel good first levi's was a huge project a, a global docu-series on the power of elections at different angles um, and so I shared platform with uh, Thandi Way Abdullah, who is the youngest youth vanguard of Black Lives Matter, and Gracie Hernandez, who's the founder of Las Chicas Chulas, focusing on mental health at the intersection of POC communities by POC. And just already, I was like, what am I doing here? Like, they're mad cool. Like, bro, this is so exhausting. How am I going to break down? Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And honestly, it was such a soft experience with them. Like it was, it felt so like I just got to be myself. Like it, it, you know, with the exception that I had Yar Shahidi like interviewing me and the whole Levi's production right there. That was such a beautiful experience because that's probably the time where I was the most sure that I wanted to go into storytelling, right? And to be part of a storytelling project that was going to be massively shared, I got to recite a poem by one of my mentors where we talked about dissent and our stories and the power of like 
collective storytelling so magical and it came out the beginning exactly one year ago that's when it came out it was everywhere and it was just so big and more than big it was so intentional <laughs> um and I worked with Old Navy too around June there was like a commercial that we did on um young storytellers 17 magazine I was at the border and then my phone was blowing up and like I had gotten hit up by them probably like no November or October and I I know I was doing something with that I know something was happening but then I saw they did like covers and I was crying in Panera Bread I'm like what the heck I'm at the border <laughs> super mega losing hope about yes. Population Mike and like Funding is such a beast of its own when you're in these worlds. I'm like, how am I going to find funding? I was like literally having a, the worst day of my life just thinking about all the hardships. And it was really inspiring um, to remember how, again, not wanting to affiliate with institutions made me feel dumb in many ways. I don't know if that makes any sense, but how so many people from institutions that I had been affiliated with before were now contacting me like you're an inspiration and I'm like well geez I wish you told me that right <laughs> when I started this shit and felt dumb for not for not going the the traditional path mm-hmm. so it was humbling because I was like I knew I knew I knew I wasn't wrong right like I knew mm-hmm. the shit I had in my brain was fucking badass and I was just too whatever I don't even want to say humble because I don't know if it's humble it's just bad it was bad, the state of mind. But that moment was beautiful. So cool, man. It's not even cool. It's it's other words, but I don't know how to put it. I was crying a lot in Panera, and I was like, wow, this is life. Like, I should tell people I'm in Panera right now by myself. Broke as hell. Struggling to, like, put pieces together of the work I came here to do, right? That's yeah. so inspiring. And then Oprah. I'm like, this is just, like... It was oh my really gosh. the way I'm expressing it. I don't, you know what? I don't know how to. I, I, I know. I, I, I wouldn't even imagine how, what you must have thought when you first saw that. Um, like I, if I were in that position, my just initial reaction would just be crying. Like it would just be like, I didn't, I didn't like my body wouldn't know how to react. It was just to like let things out. Yeah. That's crazy. So you should be really proud of yourself. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really trying. I'm really trying. I think I'm honoring that being proud of myself doesn't show the way for others it does like I have to like take some time (laughs) to process pride in what I do and that's okay for now I hope that soon right I can share that I'm so good now that I celebrate it immediately it is what it is right yes (laughs) um and I have just one last question and I know you've you've been asked this question a lot but um you know a lot of people want to be more involved in activism in some way, don't know how to get started or what it looks like to succeed. So do you have any advice on other people that want to start taking action, but like have no idea where to start? Yeah, I would say, I definitely know the answer to this because there was a point where I didn't, but then we had a conversation about it and I'm like, I feel like there's like a whole bunch of little steps, but it's not really that many. The main one is like, understand your own story, which sounds like such a a hard question to start off, but just think about like the context of where you grew up, right? Like if you grew up with enough access that you never feared for your safety, then there's a level of privilege you enter into change making. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you cannot be part of it. That's another thing I want to emphasize It just means it's important to understand who you are and where you and where you come from when you're entering a lot of these spaces. And even if you grew up right with no access, your parents were like, 
worked for really low wages or you didn't have parents, right? Like whatever your situation is, understanding the level of impact in the work helps in your aware, in your self-awareness. Um, and then two, I would say start local because there's so many local initiatives, but don't feel limited to like only volunteering at your local org. Cause I think one of the issues that I found when working with you, they're like, well, I work with this org, but it seems like they only want me because I'm young and I do free work. Let's be honest. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, don't feel tied to that. That's just, a, that's a cool way to start. Important way to start. Um, maybe cool is not the right word. It's an important way to start, I would say, because it's your local actions, but I, there's a lot of corruption even within the local orgs, right? So I think being mindful that if you volunteer, it's just a way for you to see how things are run and and kind of asking yourself, like, what role do I want to play? Um, am, I, am I part of organizing? Am I part of lobbying? Do I know what these words are? Maybe it's spending some time Googling, like, Do I see myself making calls to representatives? Do I see myself um, just going to school and being one of the people in office? Like kind of kind of asking yourself a little bit of questions and keep an open mind because change making is not one thing. It's so many things. I have friends that run organizations. I have friends that run brands that then donate directly to organizations. I have friends running it that are elected officials. I have friends that are doctors, right? That are now pushing for, you know, it's like yes. making is for everyone as it should be. Um, so keep an open mind, ask yourself a little bit of questions about your story. It's okay if you don't know everything, but it will help you to understand where you can start. And if you did grow up in a, let's say a low income city, like that's something that I can relate to. I started in high school. I was one of the people failing in school and they ran programs for kids who had situations at home that impacted their grades. So I started to push for more of that, right? And talk with my principal and ask to get invited to superintendent conversations. That was one way I did it. I also work with my church and youth, right? So it's it's keeping an open, an open mind and understanding that as you are being part of social justice, you're also learning about your own story. And don't ever let nobody tell you that you can't do something because people tend to project a lot, especially adults. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. It was lovely chatting with you. You are wise beyond your years. And um, yeah, I, I'm in awe of everything that you've done and you should be very proud of yourself. I'm gonna keep telling you. And the imposter syndrome still might be there, but maybe it'll never go away. But maybe that that's what keeps you, you know, keeps you like human and vulnerable and people love that. So. Thank you again for this conversation. It was lovely learning more about you. And that was Miss Sarah Mora. You can follow her on Instagram at Miss Sarah Mora. She's awesome. So I hope you like this episode and see you next week.